we wouldn't have Pioneer Square if uh, I hadn't really become very personally involved and, and, and really gotten uh, into the issue of whether or not we're going to preserve our, our birthplace there. Well, co-ops generally are growing dramatically within the United States right now, genuinely seen as a as a viable alternative to Wall Street. We are seeing you know ever greater backlash against uh, CEO and salaries. That's former Seattle Mayor Wes Ullman and Ted Lenhart. Wes Ullman was mayor of Seattle from 1970 to 1978. He is probably most revered for his efforts in saving Pioneer Square from the wrecking ball. He also was an early adopter of affirmative action long before it worked itself into the mainstream. The interview I'm going to play today is from 20 years ago. Let's see how well he does as a former mayor when I asked him the question, what does he think about the future of Seattle and how it's going to turn out? I asked that question with most of my guests I had on the show then, and it's very interesting going back and seeing how accurate they really were in projecting as to what they thought the biggest challenges were going to be in the Seattle area going forward. And most of them were right on the money. Matter of fact, many of them were concerned about growth and how we were going to handle it. You will also hear Jim Day, a great broadcaster from the Seattle area for many years. If you were listening to Kixie in the 1980s and 90s and well into the new millennium, Jim Day is a voice that is synonymous with Seattle radio. He did the voiceover work for my radio show in the 90s, and I told him that I really got him his start in the radio business. He didn't believe it, and it's not true, but it sounds good now, and he's living over in Chelan, so we probably won't hear this anyhow. Ted Lenhart, a design expert and now consultant to mainly independent contractors in the creative industry, he advises them on how they can better negotiate with businesses and companies that they want to develop a relationship with. And he's also in the very early stages of developing a co-op for creatives. Very interesting concept. Dr. Mark Del Picaro, Chief Medical Officer with Seattle Children's, is going to join us just for a few moments and talk about children and gun violence. Back with my interview with former Mayor Wes Ullman in just a moment. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist. Paul Casey had a chance to chat with a former Seattle Mayor, Wes Ullman. I asked former Mayor Wes Ullman, what was his fondest memories in government? Uh, well, I, I think that uh, when really pushed to the wall, it would be uh, walking down uh, through Pioneer Square and realizing that uh, we wouldn't have Pioneer Square if uh, I hadn't really become very personally involved and, and, and really gotten uh, into the issue of whether or not we're going to preserve our, our birthplace there. What position in government did you enjoy the most? Uh, well, actually, you know, I, I served in, in the state house. I served in the state senate and then as mayor. And uh, I, I would have to honestly say that uh, mayor is the most rewarding uh, uh, job that you can have in politics, better than Congress or the United States Senate or governor, I think. Because uh, you know, I was just having lunch a couple of days ago with Mayor Bellingham. 
we were talking about uh, the job of, of mayor, and you actually get to see what comes out of the pipeline and how it affects people directly. You don't um, uh, have to just vote on the appropriations and then kind of hope for the best. You're actually there on the receiving end. You're, the downside is you're closest to uh, uh, the, the people, so they can come and express their disapproval. They can sit in your office where it takes a 2,000-mile plane ride to go and sit in a congressman's office or, you know, on uh, an hour and a half uh, car ride to go down and sit in the governor's office. So people are closest to you, but the most rewarding uh, a part of being mayor is you actually get to see how programs affect people and you can change them and make them better. Mayor Ullman, what would you say would be your biggest disappointment in politics? Uh, well, it'd have to be maybe a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, I did run for uh, governor and, uh, and was very, very narrowly, uh, narrowly lost to Dixie, uh, Dixie Lee Ray. Uh, that was a disappointment, although uh, it, 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 my philosophy has always been that you should not stay in any office for uh, long periods of time, and I just felt it was time to do something else. But um, I'd have to say, substantively, my greatest disappointment was in 1972 when we had a, a light rail package all put together, which the federal government was going to pay 80% of. Um, the voters turned it down because they were still worrying about the, the Boeing layoffs and, and the economic downturn we were just coming out of. And uh, they turned it down at the polls. Uh, if we'd had it, uh, we wouldn't have the serious traffic congestion that we have today. Um, however, I honor the decision that the people made, uh, but we're living with the consequences now. The money went to Atlanta, and one only needs to go down to Atlanta to uh, to see uh, you know, what a fine program we could have had. <laughs> what do you think are the greatest challenges facing Seattle? Oh, I think today the greatest challenges that we are faced with are just managing our growth. You know, the state legislature and the governor passed the Growth Management Act, which mandates, which says for a fact we have to have greater um, density. We have to have more people living here in the city of Seattle uh, because we want to try to offset urban sprawl. And, and try to utilize our resources the best way. And that is to say, we already have the sewers and the roads in here in, in the cities, and, um, and uh, we don't want to have to go out and pay a lot more money and duplicate those, that infrastructure out in the suburbs. And we, wanted, we do want to try to contain growth. So the greatest challenge, I think, that uh, Seattle faces today is to how are we going to uh, deal with this mandate from the legislature and how to have more density in our neighborhoods and still preserve uh, the, the the uniqueness of Seattle with its single-family neighborhoods and and uh, and uh, unique qualities. Each of our neighborhoods is a kind of a unique mosaic, and we don't want to destroy that. Let's take for a moment to look back. Is there a decision that you would handle differently as mayor of Seattle today than you did at the time? Oh, I think there are several things. You know, you learn from experience. Um, I, I maybe might have tried to work more closely with the uh, fire department, the police department, in uh, trying to achieve affirmative action goals. Uh, uh, as you may or may not recall, we had a, a serious uh, recall election, which the whole issue of affirmative action was the centerpiece, and um, that, that divided the community. Um, uh, we did... we. I maintain still that we were correct in our in, in our goal, and that is to is to have a greater representation of minorities in our police and fire services. 
when I took office, there was only one black firefighter out of the entire force of seven then about 700 people. So it was clearly something that had to be dealt with. But uh, I had a fire chief who didn't agree with uh, that, uh, with those goals, and so I had to fire him, and that was very divisive. And um, I think uh, maybe I might have tried to, to handle that somewhat differently. But um, I, uh, there, there are several things that you learn from a period of time. I, I would... I think now, looking on hindsight, I would have gone back to the voters another time on the our light rail uh, program and tried harder to sell it. I asked all my guests this, Mayor Ullman, are you optimistic about the future of Seattle in this region? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we have a very unique cast of characters that make up our citizenry. Uh, they're um, they're optimistic. Uh, they're they believe in in facing challenges uh, and and meeting them and and beating them. Um, the people are here are what makes a difference in, in this community and, and I think that uh, we're going to meet these problems of growth we're going to meet the problems of transportation simply because of who we are we'd like to thank former Seattle Mayor Wes Ullman for spending time on U.S. West's Voices of Experience following is just a short clip that airs on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, and this segment is called New Rules. His subject was on conspiracies. And finally, new rule, conspiracy theories have to go back to what they used to be. Fun little stories we would tell each other when we were high. (laughs) Space aliens crashed in Roswell. Hitler escaped to Argentina. Elvis is alive and working at the IHOP. That's what conspiracy theories used to be. But now they're the ideology of the Republican Party. I never liked Rush Limbaugh, but I would take a return to 90s era ditto heads any day. Because it turned out that Rush was really just a gateway drug. (laughs) To which they eventually built up a tolerance and then needed something stronger. That was Glenn Beck, which led to Alex Jones. And now, Republicans, you're the Alex Jones party. There is literally nothing too stupid and conspiratorial that you will not swallow. Hillary running a child sex ring out of a pizza parlor. Sounds right. Obama's birth certificate, fake. This week we found out that 83% of Republicans either definitely believe or are unsure whether five million people voted illegally in the last election. Something Trump just completely made up. This isn't about ideology anymore. Trump has none anyway. When he decided to run, he didn't brush up on conservatism by studying Buckley and Reagan. 
And this isn't about actual Republicans either. Those guys are gone. George Bush the first quit the NRA in 1995 when some gun nuts called the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms jackbooted thugs. Bush said it deeply offended his sense of decency and honor. But when Alex Jones says children fake their own deaths at Sandy Hook, it doesn't deter Trump from telling him, your reputation is amazing, I'll not, I will not let you down. The latest thing, Trump, is this nonsense about the FBI spying on him. There was no spy. It was just the Bureau checking out whether someone on the Trump campaign was communicating with Russia, based on the tiny fact that everybody in the Trump campaign was communicating with Russia. It's what the FBI does. Investigation. It's in their name. But Spygate, there's literally nothing, and that is so alarming, because one way we measure the health of a society is by how conspiratorial it is. Communist countries, Arab dictatorships, those places you could always say, sell anything because there was no trust in the institutions. Republicans, that's what you're doing to this country. The only answer is that more sane people have to vote than insane people in every election. So tell your sane friends that the midterms are the most important election of their lives and tell your conservative friends that climate scientists are working with the Clintons to slip a chemical into the air ducts at polling places that will turn everyone who votes gay. That's Bill Maher with Real Time on HBO. Dr. Mark Del Picaro, Chief Medical Officer of Seattle Children's, was a guest on my show, Voices of Experience, and we were talking about the latest in research for curing childhood diseases. Now, in the course of that conversation, and not prompted by me, he brought up gun violence against children as being a public health crisis. I'm going to play a small segment of what Dr. Picaro had to say. Trauma and accidents still kill a lot of children. And in fact, in adolescence, death by gun is one is in the top five causes of death, believe it or not. We don't approach it in any way, shape, or form like that because of the whole political issue. Certainly. It is, in, in, in medicine, this is one of the biggest views of a public health emergency. I guarantee you, if children were dying of any other illness at the rate they die of gun violence, that society would be totally on top of getting rid of it. Dr. Mark Del Picaro, Chief Medical Officer at Seattle Children's. Ted Lenhart, an advisor to people in the creative industry after a long career in design, is my guest. Ted is in the early stages of developing a creative co-op in Seattle for people in the creative industry. Now, PCC has been successful in creating co-ops in the food industry. BECU is the fourth largest co-op credit union in the nation. So, why not a co-op for the creative industry? It is estimated that 40% of the U.S. workforce are now freelancers and small independent contractors. But before we dive into the co-op concept, I first asked Ted, how did he get into the business he was in? Well, I started a brand design firm in the mid-80s. We uh, grew gradually for a few years until we began catching some larger clients. 
And by the end of the 90s, we were just under 50 people and producing 10 million a year in, in fees. So it was a pretty successful brand design practice. We had clients all over the world, uh, Nissan, Lego, Charles Schwab, Apple, Electronic Arts, people like that. But you hit a point um, in your creativity or something or along the way that you decided you wanted to do something different. How did that come about? The 90s was a go-go time of, uh, of the uh, holding companies that owned advertising agencies and design agencies uh, buying up creative service companies and uh, basically uh, building giant conglomerates. So the money, Wall Street favored that. So the money was flowing and we got an offer from a, uh, from a group of investors in Chicago uh, that was basically beyond our wildest dreams. And uh, so it wasn't really our idea, except that, you know, we all thought, my partner and I always thought that the sale of the business was the end game because we didn't have any other source of money. It seems like the 90s were really ripe for that in terms of, let's say, in, in a particular agency business, they were buying up the boutique agencies right and left to it came down and there's like six or seven major advertising PR agencies in the world almost. That has dramatically flattened out since then, and revenues are down and growth is down. So basically today, those holding companies are fighting amongst each other for, for market share with you know winners and losers announced every year. Uh, because of the digital revolution. Well, in the midst of all this, and I don't know the timetable on this, but you started an agency now that uh, is described as helping creatives navigate today's marketplace and guide them through a brighter professional future. I work to help individual creatives and small firms negotiate deals with clients and and, uh, salaries and anything that involves money. Creatives have a very difficult time asking for money. Well, let's first define what creatives are. Well, I work with creative professionals, so anybody who makes their living by using their creative talents. So writers, designers, uh, graphic designers, product designers, uh, illustrators, photographers, um, strategists, um, marketers, um, even a few lawyers I've had as clients, uh, people who find themselves in jobs that demand a lot of flexibility and creativity, people in sales and marketing. I've had quite a few of those. What are the things beyond, let's say, negotiating money in turn, which is obviously quite big, what other things do you help creative type people do? Well, I help them understand what their value actually, the bigger picture of how they establish their value in the world and in their relationships. Could you give us an example of a client, let's say, not you don't have to name them or something, maybe a little story of some perfect client that came to you and they said, I need your help, and they found you, and what you did for them? Young man, designer, typical uh, I mean, uh, uh, actually considerable skills and experience uh, approached by a major corporation, take a position in-house, which is uh, very common these days. And uh, he was really nervous about the whole money conversation, nervous about dealing with uh, recruiters and the HR department on the client side. And one of the things he was particularly uh, uncomfortable with was literally asking for the money. The client made him an offer, and I could tell from 
the way the client was behaving, that they really wanted this guy. One of the signals was that a vice president at the company actually, who was on a business trip at the time, arranged a call with my client, uh, arranged a call when uh, the vice president was on a global trip. And we figured it out that he called in at midnight <laughs> to uh, have a kind of a persuasive conversation, conversation with this young man. Uh, that said to me, they, they really want this guy. My client was to have a meeting with the uh, person representing the client who was going to negotiate the salary. And they had already made him an offer. And we, we kind of felt there was probably some more money on the table there eventually. And, um, but he was afraid to actually ask for the amount of money that he felt he was worth. Perhaps you could say to the HR person, I know that you're a specialist in, in uh, recruiting people and negotiating these deals. You have way more experience than I, um, but you're not familiar with design. You're not familiar with the, my pedigree, my work, and what I've done and the importance of it. So w would it be all right with you if I kind of walked you through some of my experiences? And the young woman said, sure. And so he listed the firms he'd worked with and the client projects that he'd worked on and the success of those projects for the clients and uh, the kind of accolades he'd gotten from various co uh, creative competitions and so on. And, and then he said, with that in mind, would it be possible for you to reconsider your offer? And then he w went quiet and she immediately gave him a significant uh, bump up from what their previous offer had been. But on the other hand, I would think that a lot of times creatives would have difficulty with reality. Is that fair? Oh, I, I, no. I, yeah, that's unfair. The creatives I've worked for are very, very much dealing with the world, the world as it is. They're just afraid because when they step outside their expertise area, they feel vulnerable. Creative co-op, that's something you have created. Could you explain that? Well, actually, we haven't created it. We're in the process of planning it right now. But the fundamental idea is that creatives could actually band together in a, in a worker co-op, which is a legal description, where they actually owned the business themselves and had a say in what the business did and what kind of clients they got an opportunity to work for or not. And uh, we are hard on the path of creating a co-op and hope to have it operational within six months. So we'll see. Great. So what do you look at the future? Look at the crystal ball and tell me what the future is going to be in terms of the development of co-ops. Well, co-ops generally are growing dramatically within the United States right now. Genuinely seen as a as a viable alternative to Wall Street. We are seeing you know, ever greater backlash against uh, CEO and salaries and to supporting Wall Street as a theme. Uh, this year, 2018, when public companies report their numbers, it's now required for them to report the ratio of what CEO and, and senior management pay is to the lowest paid employee. That, so we're gonna get a lot of public stories about about obnoxious uh, pay, pay levels. Um, and so there's a, a real movement uh, that's much bigger than what I'm doing. I'm just a small part of it. A uh, real movement towards, uh, I would say, more fairness, uh, more just workplace. 
And uh, creatives could play, in my view, could play a dramatic role in that. There are uh, already several creative uh, uh, creative co-ops. There's two or three in the United Kingdom. There's at least three in the United States that I know of. Um, uh, and they tend to be small businesses. We're hoping to be able to build something that's actually much larger. And, you know, the future, uh, you know, the idealized uh, future would be that the industrial giants, America's industrial giants, uh, uh, begin to reach out to co-ops to do their work for them and to begin to emulate the, the values that are, uh, you know, focused on a healthier planet and, uh, and much more fairness between those who, who manage and those who work. Well, I really think you're on to something really big, and I wish you well in this journey because I think it's long overdue, and I'm glad you're picking this up on a level, and I think it's going to take off. I don't think there's any question about that. Thank you. <laughs> if you want to find out more about Ted Lenhart, you can visit tedlenhart.com. That's Ted, L-E-O-N-H-A-R-D-T dot com, all one word. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. That's all the time we have for this edition of Voices of Experience. I would like to thank former Mayor Wes Ullman from the interview I had with him 20 years ago, Ted Lenhart, and Dr. Mark Del Picaro for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Next week, I'm going to play an interview I had with Joe Giacovini. I will call it the Philadelphia story because I don't believe there is a person alive who knows more about Philadelphia than he does. He has lived in Philadelphia his entire life and has been involved in many of the milestones that have shaped Philadelphia in the last half of the 20th century and well into this century. If you want to listen to any show for the last year and a half, you can Google KKNW and then click on to Archives. At the very bottom of the page, click on to Voices of Experience. That will take you to SoundCloud, and then you can hear any show again for the last year and a half. You can listen to interviews I've had with former hosts of NPR's All Things Considered, Robert Siegel, I did a couple shows on homelessness during that time in the latter part of 2018. 
visited the Bread of Life mission. So you can listen to an interview I had with Mark Victor Hansen, author of Chicken Soup for the Soul. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience. Give me a call at 206-459-5536. If you want to talk about anything as it relates to this show, that's 206-459-5536. Have a great rest of the week. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home-trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.